It's 836, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Tom Barrett, in the trick box, Trolley Tom, who has spent a lot of time and effort trying to push through a $120 million streetcar to take people 2.1 miles from the train depot to the Lower East Side, a streetcar well, you could perhaps, if you wanted to be charitable, call it a yuppie people mover, although I don't think there's going to be that many yuppies that ultimately end up riding it. But this is going to be Tom Barrett's signature, pushing the streetcar. Meanwhile, he's pushing the streetcar, and it's kind of like Nero fiddling while Rome burns. Tom Barrett pushing the streetcar. We're tearing up the streets of downtown Milwaukee. But meanwhile, you've got violent crime escalating. You've got crime spreading all over the city to the point that you take your life in your hands if you try to even drive major east-west thoroughfares that for years and years had to be safe. One of the reasons you've had the lack of safety in the city of Milwaukee is because of the ridiculous policy implemented by the current chief of police, Ed Flynn, a policy based on what he describes as just his, his personal feeling and his experience, a policy that largely prevents his officers from being able to chase people who flee from them. The policy that Flynn put in place in 2010 essentially says you do not chase anybody who runs from you unless you have evidence to believe that the vehicle and the people in the vehicle were involved in essentially committing a crime of violence. So in other words, if if it's a stolen car in and of itself and the car drives off, you let it go. You just let it go. If a car passes a police officer driving 90 miles an hour, runs through a red light, you let it go. Now, if you have evidence to believe, hey, we think the people might have been involved in robbing a bank or in an armed carjacking, well, well then, then you can chase. But most times, you don't know why somebody is running. In, in most cases, it's, hey, you see the car, car's got headlights out or the car has made an illegal stop or whatever. You put on the bubble lights and, and you don't know, and then they take off. You don't know, most rank-and-file police officers, you don't know why the car is running. You just know that the car has taken off. Under Ed Flynn in Milwaukee, we do not chase. And we have seen the disastrous impact of that. What, the first few months of this year, you had almost, what, a 1,000 people who just chased, who just took off, and the cops don't follow them. And the word has, of course, now gotten out to whether it's teenagers driving stolen cars or drug dealers or other sorts of criminals, the word has gotten out, don't pull over, just run they will not, they will let you go. And what happens when you let the people run? Well, it's not like they're not going to drive recklessly. They're going to continue to speed. But more importantly, they're going to continue to commit crimes. And that's one of the things that I think has led to the actual epidemic of crime and contributed largely to the unsafe climate of the street, that we have arbitrarily tied the hands of our officers. Now, I understand you don't chase in every situation. I, I get it. There's times, like the example I always give, if it's Wisconsin Avenue at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and you know the streets are crowded, you, you, don't, you don't chase. You don't want to put police officers' lives in danger. You don't want to put civilian lives in danger. But at the same time, to have a policy that allows bad guys to drive away is stunningly stupid. There's just no way to describe it. And it has been a disaster. And yet Ed Flynn, with the same 
approach that he has when he's questioned about his stupid statements involving, uh, I think one of the reasons, one of the big reasons we have violent crime in Milwaukee is because we have concealed carry permit holders, something that he has pulled out of a certain part of his anatomy with absolutely no documentation at all. The idea that, well, I, I, I think it's important to do this. This is what my experience tells me. Well, he's just blind to the numbers. So finally, the Fire and Police Commission, which offers civilian oversight, finally, I think responding to what they are seeing, the one story after another, they're hearing from the public, they're hearing from Alterman, and the Fire and Police Commission has finally said, enough is enough, and they've issued a directive to Ed Flynn saying, we we want you to change your, your pursuit policy, and we want to give officers the discretion to chase if there's evidence that somebody is driving recklessly, endangering safety, like blowing through red lights at 95 miles an hour, or if there are cars that have been, that have taken off in multiple occasions, you know, we've seen this car, this car's run from us twice, or if there are cars that they believe that are involved in dealing drugs, because that's one of the things that's promoting the drug trade nowadays. It used to be that you'd have stationary drug houses, you know, there'd be a house that people would go to, and they buy their drugs out of. That's not how a lot of drug dealers operate anymore. They operate out of cars. That's one of the reasons so many cars get stolen, because the drug dealers, they've got their cell phones, they've got their stolen cars. They get the phone call from somebody wanting to buy heroin or wanting to buy crack cocaine or wanting to buy methamphetamine or whatever, and then they're in the car. They just say, okay, I'll meet you on the corner of 4th and whatever, and then they show up, they do the deal, and then they drive off. Much more difficult for police to try to track that down and catch the dope dealers than if they're operating out of a stationary house. So this new directive, as issued by the Fire and Police Commission, would also give the police the opportunity to chase these drug drug deal cars. Because, again, right now they're not allowed to do it. They're not allowed to do it. It's just been a crazy policy. So the Fire and Police Commission, and mark the tape on this one, they're they're doing the right thing. So the directive says you've got to do it. The only thing that could stand in the way of the Fire and Police Commission's directive becoming essentially an order is Trolley Tom Barrett. Um, Because Barrett can overrule his Fire and Police Commission. And it's his Fire and Police Commission because he appoints the people that are on it. He can overrule the Fire and Police Commission in writing. And instead of simply saying, I agree with the Fire and Police Commission, public safety is important to me. I am outraged at the number of people who are fleeing from police and then continuing to commit crimes. Tom Barrett had a chance to do the right thing. That is what his statement should have been 30 seconds after this order came out. That, yeah, I'm... And you know that Barrett had to know about this beforehand. This couldn't have been a surprise. 30 seconds after this order came out, Barrett should have said, I'm down with this 100%. We need to put public safety in the city of Milwaukee first. And by the way, if here's the thing. It's not just the city of Milwaukee. Because for those of you who live in these suburbs... One of the things that's happened is crime from the city of Milwaukee has been spreading, not just to other communities in Milwaukee County, but to Ozaki County, to Washington County, to Waukesha County, to Racine County, as the criminals expand. Anything we can do to get Milwaukee criminals off the streets is critical. So Tom Barrett, he should have come out and said 30 seconds after this order, 
this is going to be, I think this is a good directive, we're going to implement it. Um, what is his response? Well, it's the typical mealy-mouthed mayor. I'll be meeting with the police chief. I'm meeting with the director of the Fire and Police Commission to make sure we're doing the right thing, said Mayor Tom Barrett. I want to see what's happening nationally. I want to see what's happening from a safety standpoint. Mr. Mayor, open your damn eyes. I'll tell you what's happening from a safety standpoint. Your city is crumbling due to crime. The bad guys are laughing at you, and they are putting everybody else in danger. So the Fire and Police Commission's order, they've got the directive. It now is on the mayor's desk to decide whether or not he's going to stop this from taking over. At some point in time, you've got to wonder, will Tom Barrett step up and really start saying that he really cares about dealing with crime in the city of Milwaukee, or, 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 is it all going to be, well, I want my trolley. Well, okay, Mr. Mayor, um, maybe you can get to the point where people are afraid to drive their cars or afraid to be walking across intersections because of all the reckless driving, the people running from police officers. Maybe that will force everybody to drive the tro- to ride on those trolleys. But my guess is it will mean that a lot of people just aren't going to live in your city anymore. Mayor Barrett, the clock is ticking. It's 844. When we come back, three big things. Is it corporate welfare or something we need to do? Stick around. It's 845. Eight forty-eight. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Should employers be prevented from seeing social media posts of potential employees during the hiring process? Good luck with that. There's now a push to make this info off limits to some. Where do you come down? Scafidi and Bill Stat debate at twelve thirty-five today. Check it out. All right. Um, the, the the big business story, and it could be a game changer for Wisconsin, is the fact that that Foxconn, which is a Chinese company that um, has over 1 million employees worldwide, $136 billion in annual revenue. It's a technology company, but they're, they're sort of low-end technology jobs in some respects. They, what they do, well, they do a lot of stuff, but principally they assemble electronics for other companies. Um, Apple's Apple equipment, okay? Apple doesn't assemble the stuff like the Apple iPhones. iPhones aren't assembled by Apple. Apple farms that out. Foxconn assembles them. Lots of the Nintendo stuff is assembled. It's that type of of things. But they, they employ a tremendous amount of people. Their main operation is in China, where they have access to very, very cheap labor. They also have, I believe, a large plant in India. They do not currently operate in the United States. They are considering building a facility, a production hub in the United States. Now, there's a lot of reasons behind this. I I think part of it is actually the, the Trump and the America First thing, and I think they're concerned about certain trade issues, and I think they believe if they open up a production facility in the United States, it'll make it easier for them to continue to do business as they do. Well, whatever. I mean, it's a, it's a game changer. What they are talking about, if they come to the United States, is a facility that would probably, within a couple years of operation, employ over 10,000 people. Now, like I say, a lot of their work is... Um, sort of low-end technology, it's the assembly type of stuff, but also you, you need you need other people who are familiar with how you do this, so there would be a trickle-up effect. So you're talking about 10,000 jobs um, that would come to a particular area. 
Wisconsin is one of a handful of states that is putting on a full court press, trying to wine and dine the Foxconn people to, to get them to, again, what some people would describe as, as a game changer. I mean, if you have this giant global technology company that comes in, locates its production facility, say, in Racine County, um, you're, you're talking about thousands and thousands of jobs that presumably will be here for a long, long time. It also would be a huge boon to, for example, a lot of the technical colleges across the area who have to produce people who, you know, have some knowledge of what it is that Foxconn does. It would be a great conduit at, as, as well. Matter of fact, it could be a magnet because one of the things that would happen is all of a sudden you have 10,000 of these technology jobs that open up. You know, you'd have undoubtedly there's some people that work at technology companies in the area now who would be attracted to go to Foxconn. They'd work there. That would create vacancies at where they work, and there'd be a demand for people. Theoretically, you know, you could have people being hired from all over the country to come in and either work at Foxconn or fill in jobs that people in other related industries who are already working here vacated to go work for Foxconn. It, it could, in fact, be a game changer. But well, here's the problem. Here's the problem that comes with this. Foxconn um, is, is used to, as many companies do, demanding huge incentives from government in order to locate um, that, that's, that's what they've demanded, and that's what they've received for their, their facilities in China and in India. Um, there are estimates, and again, it's tough to you know, quantify this, but there are estimates that in order to get Foxconn over the next 10 to 20 years, um, you would have to put together a package of incentives somewhere, well, there's a columnist in the Madison paper that estimates that it's somewhere between 2 to $3 billion dollars. Um, and, and that's just what the going rate is. Um, they, they give examples in the story I'm looking at. Nevada went after Tesla, you know, the, the electric car company, of $1.3 billion in incentives that led to the creation of 6,500 jobs. New York went after something called advanced micro devices, $1.2 billion, led to 1,200 jobs. Alabama went after the uh, Thyssen Krupp, one billion two thousand jobs. South Carolina went after Boeing, nine hundred million in incentives. It led to thirty eight hundred dollars, thirty eight hundred jobs. So you know you're talking about potentially again ten thousand jobs, and the estimates are over a period of time in various incentives, tax incremental financing districts, whatever you want to do, um, two to three billion dollars. Some people look at this and say it's just not worth it. It's corporate welfare. Why should we, in the state of Wisconsin, or these our local communities, why should we be doing this much to give to this giant global company that has revenues of, what was the number I was throwing around, $136, um, $136 billion in annual revenue? Why should we, taxpayers, be doing something like that in an effort to try to lure this company here? Right, let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it worth it? Is this corporate... And there, the truth of the matter is, there's various states that are in the bidding for this production facility. And obviously, one of the things Foxconn is going to be looking at is who can give us the best deal. Now, you can find best in a couple ways, but clearly... 
you're going to be talking about for a production facility like this and the longevity, you're going to be talking about, you know, I, I think certainly $2 billion. By the time you add it all up, maybe more. Is that corporate welfare or is that something we need to do to jumpstart this economy? Our number, 414-799-1620. My take on this, well, I'll tell you it when we come back, but I want to hear what you think as well. 414-799-1620. It is 855. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 858, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. This is a huge story, and we're going to continue this topic. Um, We're going to carry this over the top of the hour news, but let's get started. Kirk in Eagle. Kirk, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. A couple billion dollars. Is it too much to bring Foxconn to Wisconsin? Kirk. Hello. Hi, Kirk. You're on the air. All right. Well, I guess there's a bunch of rack in the background. Couldn't (laughs) agree. Okay. Well, if you do a little math and you tell yourself that uh, you're going to spend $2 billion, we'll take that number for granted. Um, I don't think you can amortize it over 20 years. I mean, 20 years ago, we were walking around with telephones that weighed three pounds, so I don't know that anybody can say Foxconn will be doing what they're doing 20 years from now. So let's just amortize it over 10 years. That's okay. $200 million a year. If you talk about 10,000 jobs, that's $20,000 per job right. per year. Right. So uh, if you're talking about a $15 an hour wage for a production job, that means we're subsidizing two-thirds of what that person's base wage is going to be. So if you do this math certainly doesn't seem to be worth it. The trouble is there's no way to measure the knock-on effects of having a 10,000-person employer and what the other effects will be. Exactly. Uh, exactly. In light of the fact, in light of, and even though the math is bad, in light of the fact that our government officials, you know, starting with Mayor Barrett, and you can go right down the line as far as what their job creation has been, their record is, which is pretty lousy, I think you need to roll the dice and make a pitch because all the other companies that could be attracted. Yeah. That, well, that, uh, that, 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 I mean, that's one of the things they're saying, that they, they think that if you bring Foxconn in with what they do. It's 909. This is Jeff Wagner. If you're just tuning in, we're right in the middle of discussing big story number one. And I don't know that there's a bigger story for the state of Wisconsin. The state is involved in a full court press to try to bring Foxconn, which is a, a giant global company based out of China. They, they assemble electronics devices for Apple and Nintendo and things like that. They employ a million people, um, $136 billion in annual revenue. They are looking at building a plant in the United States. It would employ 10,000 people just at that plant alone. Um, At the same time, to get the plant here, um, a number of states are already been. And why do they want to be in the U.S.? Well, I think I think a lot of the reason is uh, again because they want to. They're concerned with tariffs and issues like that, so it becomes easier if they are actually if they have a production facility in the United States to avoid um, you know some of the the trade battles that are potentially looming. Um, if they were to build here, though, we would have to, we being the state of Wisconsin would have to provide incredible incentives, and the estimates are over the next ten to twenty years those incentives whether it's tax incremental financing districts or tax breaks or whatever, would total somewhere between 2 and $3 billion. I think this is potentially a game changer. I think it is worth it. And I think state officials 
and local officials should be getting together to make a push. On our text line, we have a note. There will be tag-alongs um, to Foxconn through packaging, printing companies, Internet companies, restaurants, mo- um, motels, all the trucking firms. It is a good investment in the area and the community. It's not only about Foxconn. I agree with that. In addition, one of the things that I think we would see happen is a number of other Companies that do not do business right now in the United States might be inclined to come in because, again, I mean, Fox, Foxconn, for example, they work with flat screens when they're assembling the iPhones and things like that. Well, all right, maybe you're going to have the companies that manufacture those flat screens. They're going to want to be located by the Foxconn plant. So this has the potential to be a start. I understand the argument about corporate welfare, but every once in a while you have to realize other people are doing this. If they don't come to Wisconsin, they're going to come somewhere else, or they're going to stay overseas. Would we really be better off just being status quo? And in this particular case, I think the answer is no. 414-799-1620 is the number. Chris and Racine. Chris, thanks for waiting. Good morning. Uh, good morning. I think you just kind of put it in perspective, uh, what you just said, uh, and, you know, I have to agree, it's, you know, like you said, corporate welfare, and, I mean, but I think at the same time, I know Racine County for sure, especially the city of Racine, needs something. Um, they've been losing for the last two decades for sure, so we need something for people to come back. Um, and I think you guys pointed out the water, you know, we right. have a lot of water, so it's beautiful. Um, but... On the same hand, if we pass it up, I mean, who's going to take it on? And who's even to say that they're going to come to the United States? I mean, I know that there's been to talk about it, but let's just say all of the states kind of pass it up and blow it off, then they go, you know, elsewhere. Well, you're right. And I I don't think that's what's going to happen, Chris. I mean, I think because of the whole tariff issue, they are committed to building a plant somewhere in the United States. But if it's not Wisconsin, it's going to be Michigan. Would we rather see Michigan get all these jobs and have the potential to become a technology hub, or would we rather have it in southeastern Wisconsin? I'm voting southeastern Wisconsin. (laughs) Oh, exactly, exactly. And, you know, like Christine wants to pass this arena for their downtown, but I just don't think for that. It's the right time for that too. There's everybody's lost. I mean, there's you can only pinch the taxpayers so much. Right. We need something to come back, and this is a great opportunity right here. Uh, this raised my eyebrows a lot. I looked into it very, very little, but I'm going to look into it a lot wow. more. And, and I've been hearing it on radio stations. Yeah. And um, but well, like you said before, I noticed that they their footprint is around water, so. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. I mean, and that's one of the things that that is attractive. But at the same time, let's be honest. Um, This is a company that is used to, I'm going to say, extracting. And and there's there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I understand it. If if I'm the CEO of a company and I am offering, all right, 10,000 jobs and the potential for being a game changer for a state's economy to go to a state like Wisconsin, which really isn't a major technology hub, let's, let's face it, and saying, okay, I, I have this potential to open this whole thing up and to change the dynamics in the state, perhaps for you know the next couple decades. Perhaps. You never know what's going to happen. I appreciate that. Um, but if I'm the CEO of that company, I, I'm going to be saying, okay, I'm bringing this to you, you know, what are you going to do for me? And Foxconn apparently has a history of um, extracting, you know, demanding and getting stuff that is very, very dear. So they're not going to come cheap. 
but at the same time, you're not going after something that's going to be five or ten jobs. And I'm not dismissing going after a company that's going to provide five to ten jobs, but that's not what this would be. This would be they estimate 10,000 jobs just at Foxconn alone, and then all the, what the um, for example, what the one texter was saying was, was the tag-alongs. Let's talk to Gary in Brookfield. Gary, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Oh, hi, Jeff. Hi, Gary. Yeah, my take is similar to yours on the previous callers, but I think it's as simple as this. Just a cost-benefit study needs to be done. We know what the cost is. The benefits, I think, could be surprisingly large. And Mm -hmm. if you consider income taxes, payroll taxes, sales taxes, property taxes, and then the ripple effects that you were talking about before, all these people spending more money on restaurants and food and clothing, and then all all the other companies, companies. right, all the other companies that then might have to come in because they're going to service the the, the plant. Um, Exactly. Absolutely. And if you took one one number uh, of that whole group and you just said income taxes, let's say the typical employee would pay $2,000 of state income taxes. And I think that's a very reasonable or conservative number. And if right. you just took $2,000 times 10,000 employees for 20 years, that's $400 million. Mm-hmm. Now you add up all the other categories, all the other ripple benefits that would occur. Um, I, I think the number would be surprisingly large. So we know if we do nothing, we know that if we don't do a subsidy, we know the benefit will be zero. Right. Why wouldn't we we invest in something where there's, if we do a study where the benefits would reasonably be two or three or four times as high as the cost? Right. No. Exactly. And and thanks. For, I mean, see, now now part of it is I, I I agree with you about the whole cost benefit analysis. Now some of it sometimes you get that stuff and you kind of raise your eyebrows. For example. I think the Bucks Arena downtown is a good thing, but there's a, a lot of people who would tell you that if you just look at it on a pure cost-benefit analysis, the taxpayers never win. I understand there's some studies that suggest otherwise, but I, I think sometimes th- there is a value to something beyond just the pure dollars and cents, the idea that, okay, you, you know, you, you, there's 30 NBA basketball teams, you're going to have one. There, there is a value uh, that's almost impossible to quantify, and I understand some people disagree with that. In this particular case, though, I mean, I think if, if you look at the economics of it, again, interesting piece in the, in the state journal where they try to break it down. What they estimate is some of these other states that have gone after the Teslas or the advanced micro devices or, or the Krupp plants and all, they, they estimate that the, the cost, and we're kind of ballparking this, um, over 20 years is about $300,000 per job. So it comes out to like $15,000 in incentives to bring the Tesla plant to um, Nevada, and the $15,000 a year. Well, okay, but, you know, what are the other things that that led to, um, and, and where do you draw the line? I mean, I think we need game changers. I mean, I really do think we need game changers, and this has the potential to be one. Uh, Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Jeff. Hey, my, uh, I agree with everything else. The cost benefits, you know, it's great to have the company come here and you gotta pay to play, uh, as I always say. <laughs> and, uh, wherever you are, casino or whatever, you gotta pay to play. But, um, my concern is that, uh, Foxconn pays people in China like under two bucks an hour. Yep. And my concern is that if these $10,000 jobs, are they all gonna be like minimum wage jobs? We want some family, uh, Earning right. jobs. Yeah, and my, my, no, and no, I think that that that's a fair one. Um, because thanks to God, I mean, you're you're right. I mean, one of the reasons one of the reasons they have big plants in China 
and in India is that they can pay wages which are substandard by U.S. values. And I think that is that is a concern. Now, I don't candidly believe that in this country you're going to be able to get the type of employees they need to do the type of work that they are doing if you're, you're only paying minimum wage. I, I just I think that's going to be a, a marketplace thing that, that takes over for it. Matter of fact, I think the bigger concern is going to be, if I were Foxconn, the bigger concern is going to be, since Wisconsin is not a technology hub now, where, you know, is there enough of the workforce right now that we could draw from, you know, in the immediate area that could, you know, meet our initial needs? And, and that's why if something like this happens, you look at like WCTI and MSOE and, and UWM, I guess, to an extent, and all the other universities in this area, I mean, it, it's got the potential to say, Okay, here, you know, we want to really invest in these sort of resources, training people, because you've got this big company that's going to be just looking really hard to find jobs. I, I think this is something that you have to go after with both feet. Now, I understand at some point in time, the cost gets so much that you've got to back away, but... I don't think we're near that point. This could be a game changer for the state of Wisconsin, and I'm all in. It's 920. This is Jeff Wagner. Big thing number two is coming up. Stick around. And then one day it's 922. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Roger Waters brings his Us and Them tour to the BMO Harris Bradley Center on Saturday, July 29th. That's coming up. Man, I can't believe July is getting away from us. We're giving you a chance to win a pair of tickets all this week. Be listening to my program sometime between 8.30 and noon, and you could be enjoying the music of Roger Waters featuring the songs of Pink Floyd right here with 620 WTMJ. Matter of fact, let's do this now. Caller number 16, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Caller 16 wins a pair of tickets to see Roger Waters and his Us and Them tour at the BMO Harris Bradley Center on Saturday, July 29th. Caller number 16. Um, interesting story. If you want to chronicle the rise and fall of, of a political can't of a political operative, a political person, I, I don't know that there's anyone who's had a more dramatic fall than the outgoing governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. You will remember Chris Christie was a, a rising star in Republican Party politics. Um, guy got elected as a Republican out of New Jersey, which traditionally was a Democratic state. You know, he had this sort of, well, th- th- this attitude that was kind of like Scott Walker's attitude, but Scott Walker on steroids. Rising star. Some people thought he was going to be the president of the United States. Presidential campaign ended up not going anywhere. But Chris Christie was one of the people early on who attached his star to Donald Trump. He was one of the guys that was one of the early embassaries. He was one of the people that was out there, you know, um, taking heat and explaining some of the Trump situation, things like that. And they were really, really tight. And there were a lot of people who thought, okay, maybe Chris Christie is going to be the vice presidential nominee or Chris Christie is certainly going to be, you know, in line for a high-level cabinet position. Maybe he's going to be the attorney general. Who, who knows exactly? Well, Chris Christie has dropped off the political radar. I mean, he's, his, his unpopularity ratings, to the extent you believe polls, are soaring in New Jersey. He's in a situation now where, for God's sake, he's trying out to host 
talk show, a sports talk show on WFAN out of New York. I mean, you want to talk about how the mighty have, have fallen. This is a guy who, at one point in time, woke up in the morning seeing himself as the next president of the United States. Now he wants to be a sports talk show host. No reflection on anybody who's a sports talk show host. But this is where, where Chris Christie is. There's an interesting story in the New York Post. And one of the things that people have been wondering about is what happened between him and Trump. Because Donald Trump is notoriously loyal. Some people would argue loyal to to a fault. Um, in, in some cases, surrounding himself with people who are like like yes men and people who are just you know willing to fall on the swords. And then, of course, Trump's history is that after a while, you know, he kicks you to the curb. You know, no matter how loyal you've been. But there's an interesting story in in the New York Post about what what Christie did. What happened? Here's the story. Chris Christie made his ultimate mistake with Donald Trump when he bragged about talking to President Obama on election night and offered to let Trump, an infamous germaphobe, use Christie's cell phone to talk to Obama. So it's election night, all right? So, you know, they're they're, they're, they're waiting for the results and all. And apparently Christie calls Obama because he's got the number. Um, He then says to to the the soon-to-be president-elect, he says, hey, hey, look, um, um, if, if we win, um, I, I've already talked to the, um, Don, Donald. I, if, if we win, I've already talked to President Obama. He's going to call my cell phone, and I'll pass it over to you. To which Trump, a visibly angry Trump, snapped at his top campaign aide. Hey, Chris, you know my blanking phone number. Just give it to the president. I don't want your blanking phone. <laughs> um, so in other words, it's kind of like, here, I... I called the president, uh, I called President Obama, and I told him to call me, and I, I, I'd, I'd pass it on to you. Um, Trump was like, no, 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 that's not the way we work. And that, in and of itself, apparently is, at least according to the stories, that's what led to the start of the demise of Chris Christie. Some people might argue it happened a little bit sooner. We've given away our pair of tickets to see uh, Roger Waters. More tickets to give away, the balance of the week. Coming up, big story number two. It's 927. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner, 620, WPMJ, Nancy from Oak Creek wins our Roger Waters tickets. The sales of Harley-Davidson bikes are dipping, and many analysts blame millennials for not buying the way previous generations did. That's exactly right. What can the iconic motorcycle company do to attract younger buyers? Discuss with Scafidi and Billstat, 135 this afternoon. Okay, big thing number two. Let's get right to this before the news. Um, efforts to replace Obamacare appear to be going nowhere. In the Senate, you have a number of hardline, more conservative uh, senators who don't believe the reform package that was put together goes far enough in rolling back Obamacare. You have a handful of more moderate-slash-liberal Republican senators who think it goes too far. Bottom line is, it's sort of like herding cats, and they can't get enough votes to pass it. So what Mitch McConnell has said he's going to do is, hey, we've got candidates, we've got, we've got representatives, we've got people who have run for years on a repeal Obamacare uh, plat- platform. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put people on record. Last time we got 50 votes for this. We're going to come back and we're going to vote to repeal Obamacare within two years. So we'll go back to the, pre- the previous system 
That's the proposal, the idea being that gives us two years to come up with something different, but we're not going to repeal and replace right now. We're just going to repeal. As you might expect, heads are exploding in newsrooms all across the country. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Republicans have been running on a platform of repealing Obamacare for the better part of the last six or seven years. All right. Is that what we should do? There's not an agreement right now on what a replacement should be. Should we go ahead and repeal over a two-year period? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My answer is yes, and I'll explain why, but I want to hear from you as well. It's 936, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Republicans have been running for... Well, since Obamacare went into effect, Republicans have been running on platforms to repeal Obamacare. Now that the Republicans are in power, that they can't seem to agree on what to replace it with. So Mitch McConnell says, okay, we're just going to go ahead. We're going to vote to repeal it. Is this a good idea? 414-799-1620 is the number. Let's start with Dave in Appleton. Dave, you're first. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Yes, I agree with you. And... And uh, I also made a phone call to Senator Johnson's office today to express that very point. But beyond that, you're a smarter guy than I am. I don't know why, about that. <laughs> why? Why the insurance companies write whatever policy they want? You know, that's the policy people are buying. That's the policy we're going to propose. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry. You're, I, the only thing I'm smart about, Dave, is that um, our, our connection's working. Your cell phone was dropping out there a little bit. I, I think what you were going to say was, you know, why, why is the government involved a, at all? Well, I mean, the, the, the government, the, the reason why you had, at least I think, some of the push for the Affordable Care Act in the first place was because there were problems in the health care delivery system, the insurance system, that had priced some people out of the market and had limited sorts of coverages. I agree that there were issues. And the example I always come back with is is the pre-existing condition thing. You've got somebody that's worked their entire life for a company. They've had insurance. They've paid into the health insurance. And all of a sudden, at the age of 52, they somehow, they suddenly lose their job. So what they're in a situation with is you, you can stay on the health insurance, you know, through COBRA for 18 months or whatever. But during that period of time, they're not able to find another job. During that period of time, they get diagnosed with a, a catastrophic illness. You get cancer or whatever. Um, and as a result of that, well, then they're uninsurable once that insurance you know, rolls out. That, that, those are the pre-existing condition concerns. One of the problems, of course, that has helped undermine the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare is the fact that insurance, and I, I've talked about this before, for, for insurance to work, you have to have a pool of healthy workers who are paying in, kind of, as again, protection should they get really sick, to cover the costs for the people who do get really sick. That's what you need. The problem with the way the Affordable Care Act is set up is there's not incentive enough, and the premiums that people are paying are not large enough to cover 
the people who are drawing out, the people who are sick. And a lot of people are simply making the decision, hey, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to wait. I'm not, I'm going to pay the couple thousand dollar penalty knowing that I can then get on the Affordable Care Act, you know, a few months later on, you know, once there's open enrollment. But the, the incentives for requiring people, healthy people to pay in aren't great enough. And so you've got a disproportionate number of sick people who are, or people who are drawing out money, who are the ones that are going to the system, and the system is going broke. So, you, I mean, the reality is you have to do something. And that's why I think you, you've got you've to goose this system along, because the way it stands right now, there are going to be a number of counties across this country and several states starting next year where there's no insurance market that's available. No companies, no insurance companies are willing to participate. Um, you, you need to do something. Now, there needs to be a phase-in, and hopefully by saying, all right, we're, we're doing this now, but we're going to phase it in over two years, that will light the fire under people to say, okay, what are we going to do and how are we going to address this? I don't think, I've always believed that you didn't need to blow up the entire system to deal with some of the problems that were there. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Sam and McHenry. Sam, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me Yes, on. sir. We don't have to blow up the whole health care system like you just said, and that's the basis of my point. Why don't they just put everything back to the way it was before Obama got in, along with taking down the state line barriers and yep. some of these good ideas that the Republicans have. You'll get your doctor back. You'll get your PPO back that you like. Everything will be back to normal, along with some of these improvements that everybody was excited about. And all this nonsense that they're arguing about with Medicaid and all this, work that out at a later date on a separate issue. But if you would just put the system back, right. I think most of the country would be just delighted. Well, and look at the model. I mean, look, I think the health insurance system in Wisconsin was a model before Obamacare. It was really a model for the nation. You had the high-risk pool, so the people that were in the situation that I was describing about earlier, I mean, they were able to get insurance. Did they have to pay a little bit more? Yeah, but but they still had access to to insurance. I, I, I firmly believe that if the entire, if every state used the model that we use with Badger Care and all those things, we, we'd be much better off than we are now, yeah. and we certainly wouldn't be as underwater when it comes to money. Yeah, I, I would agree, and, and I think we've seen a lot with this Obamacare that we really don't like. And, you know, they're arguing about Medicaid and some of these issues that weren't even a campaign issue. Right. You know, prior to the Republicans getting in, and they're getting all bogged down with this stuff that nobody even cares about. Right. I think they need to just take a good step back and say, gee, you know, everybody, most people like what they had before this. Now, let's just go back to that, make some of the rough-edge improvements that I right. know you've talked about. Yeah. And you got most of the country behind you. Well, right. And it's, and it's all, I mean, thanks to, well, I mean, again, it's all the way you explain it. Now, there's in, there's a story in the New York Times, which makes the point that I have been making during this entire discussion. Once you have an entitlement program that is put in place, in the history of this country, on the federal level, that entitlement program has never gone away because people then feel entitled to this. And you'll hear the stories, oh, if you do this, you're going to have millions of people that are going to lose their insurance. Well, no, not not necessarily. There, there might be people who choose you know, not to carry insurance, like the young people who are healthier, or 
and, and I was arguing this yesterday, that this idea that you that we have a one-size-fits-all type of insurance policy, that you, which you know it used to be. Look, if you go to buy an insurance policy, and you would sit down with your insurance agent, then, and again, keep in mind, most people in this country still get their insurance through their employers um, or through the government as part of Medicare. So that the number of people that are in the private insurance market are still comparatively small. So we've blown up the entire system to deal with those people who don't get their insurance through employers or don't get their insurance or aren't over 65 and don't get it through Medicare. So we've blown up the entire system um, to, to deal with uh, the smaller percentage of people. And I understand, again, that there were issues. But, but to me, when you... When you sit down, let's take automobile insurance. I was using this example yesterday. When, when you decide what automobile insurance you want, you sit down with your insurance agent and you say, do I need collision insurance? I mean, do, do I need, do, do I need, it, it, if I've got a $3,000 or a car that's worth $5,000 and I wreck it, do I need to be paying for insurance to reimburse me? Or am I willing to take the risk? You know, how big a deductible do I have? Do I want 250 Do I want 500 Do I want $1,000? How, how much uninsured motorist coverage do I want? You, you discuss these things. You know, that used to be that way in health insurance. You would sit down, and there would be a variety of plans that would be offered. Okay, what's the deductible? What is the coverage? I don't need maternity coverage. I guarantee you I'm not having kids. I understand that. I, I don't need maternity coverage. Um, I, I don't need to pay for birth control coverage, okay? So, you know, why why do I why am I forced to have a policy or in my case, why is my employer forced to offer me that and pay for something that I am never going to use? I'm just saying, you know, give give the individuals uh, the authority to go back and to kind of make the decisions. And for the low-income folks, all right, then you put together some subsidies that are there. Um, I, I, I understand that. But, but you go back to this free market sort of thing, allowing people to make their choices. You do the subsidies. You allow there to be competition. I agree with what Sam was saying. You allow insurance companies to offer policies across state lines so you know you're able to make decisions about gee okay um you know maybe if a company is offering policies across the midwest okay maybe that that's going to be good because they're going to have a larger pool all right 414-799-1620 do we just repeal it now the problem is if you repeal it without a replacement i concede that you potentially have chaos um for at least two years from now, if nothing is done. But is this what you need to do to light a fire under people to get something done? And heaven forbid, maybe even get some Democrats to cross the aisle and decide that they are going to cooperate. We continue the conversation next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 946. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 949. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. One of our callers made a really good point. Part of the problem with the repeal and replace Obamacare is it's not... As, as part of Obamacare, the option was given to governors to expand their Medicaid programs. And some governors, like Scott Walker, said, look, I, I don't want to do this because I'm not sure of what the future of Obamacare is. And, and I right now we're getting federal money. I don't know if that federal money is going to continue. Other governors decided, here, it, it's free money. We will take it. They expanded their Medicaid programs. And now the Republican senators are in a little bit of a trick box because some of the governors are saying, wait, you're going to take away money that you've been giving us? Well, we, we don't we don't want 
No, we don't want that. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty is number. Actually, fascinating text on our text line. Let's see. Um, Rick and Mequon text. Why not just mandate that everyone not covered by a group plan buy a minimum amount of health insurance to protect against serious illnesses? We do that for auto insurance with little controversy. Well, right. I, I that would be my answer. But I mean, some people think that. Oh no, you know we have to have cradle to grave uh, coverage, and that people can't be expected to make copays, or you know can't be expected to, I don't know, pay anything if they want to, you know, have have a physical. Um, let's see another text. Why can't it be like when you rent a car, you can decline all the coverage or select the type of coverage you choose? Yeah, see, I think that that's a key to any reform thing. The the idea that. And that's one of the things that some people got hung up on. It was something that Ted Cruz wanted to be in the sentence reform thing to, again, say insurers would have the option of offering the full boat of stuff that's covered under Obamacare. So if you want to buy a policy that has maternity coverage, for example, or birth control coverage, whatever, but if you wanted a more bare-bones type of policy, you could buy that as well. Now, the New York Times calls that junk insurance. Well, I don't know that that's junk insurance. It's just you know people deciding you know what you want and people deciding whether to take risks or not. Like, hey, you know, if I've got a huge... I'm willing to self-insure for a bit. I can afford... You know, two thousand. I can afford five thousand dollars in out-of-pocket medical expenses. Um, I don't need to have the two hundred fifty, two thousand five hundred dollar, you know, deductible. I, I can afford five thousand, but give me lower premiums. I mean, that's the choice that people um, make. Um, let's see. Mitch and Surgeon Bay texts. Shopping across state lines has been a GOP mantra for years. Even some Democrats like it. Why is that still not in the bill? Yeah, I think that's a fair thing too. Competition. Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, good morning. You are a voice of reason. What do you think about this? <laughs> Matt, on this point. Well, no, you can be a voice of reason. You can disagree with me, but you can be a voice of reason still. That's okay. First of all, I don't think the Senate is going to repeal Obamacare, but I don't think they shouldn't. The fact is, is that they're going to try to kick this 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 thing down the road for two years. Mm-hmm. And 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 they, first of all, they promised that our, our president ran on the fact that he was going to uh, repeal and replace. Obamacare with affordable health care for the American people. The fact is, if, if you delay this two years, why should I believe them now that all of a sudden they're going to fix this and you're going to leave thousands and thousands of individual, individuals in limbo about how they're going to pay for their health care? Doesn't this, though, pressure people to, if you, you say you're going to repeal two years from now, it, it, go, it, it goes out of existence, doesn't that then put pressure on everybody to try to come up with whatever the solution is going to be to deal with the, the obvious problems that exist in the uh, health care system? I don't think so. I, I think the fact is, it, I think the fact is, it's just like anything else. They're, I think they're just going to bypass it and just let it lay there. And, and everybody's going to continue to, to, to kick this can down the road two years, three years, four years. And, and the fact is, you, either you're going to have, either you're going to continue with Obamacare, or the fact is, is that you're going to, uh, like I've said before, you're going to leave all these people in limbo. And let's go back to your your, your, your example about car insurance. The fact is, you're going to you, you you're going to pay either way. The fact is, I pay for uninsured drivers. I in, in my car insurance, I pay for reckless drivers. I even pay for those individuals who are paying lower cost on the. Uh, right. uh, 
on their insurance. So the fact is, if you look at if you look at insurance that way, the fact is you're going to end up paying regardless. Somebody's going to end up paying because the insurance companies are not going to bite the bullet on this. No. And so the so the fact is. But the choice is your. But the thing is, you're at least making the choice to take that risk as opposed to having the government say you you've got to pay for it. You don't have any choice at all. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you are, but the point, but the point is, is that the people that are paying the higher premiums are paying for, 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 for the fact is that I'm, I'm, I'm down here with this little insurance, and I, right. you know, this little insurance, and, and, and so, and, and, and if I, if I decide not to even take insurance and just ride around here without insurance, I'm still paying for that. And so, and, and, and so but, but the, but the point is, it, it was promised affordable health care. Mm-hmm. This was promised. And why should I believe individuals who promised it uh, uh, 10 months ago that they were going to bring about affordable health care, that all of a sudden they're going to, t- they're going to uh, two years from now, they're going to have this big change of heart and deal with health care? Well, I think that's, that's, a, that's a fair point. I guess my response would be this puts pressure on them to replace Obamacare with a system that is going to work, and see, I, I get. See, here's my problem, Vincent. That I, I can't get around is that Obamacare right now is cratering, and, and that's 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 the story you don't get out of the mainstream media. But insurance companies aren't participating in these exchanges anymore because they can't make money. They're, they're they're just they're losing money hand over fist, and I understand there's some people say well part of it is that there's uncertainty over where we're going, and, and there's an element of that. But the fundamental problem is that they're they're losing money because it's not working. They're they're paying out more in claims than they are getting in in premiums. It is an unsustainable model, and starting next year, you're going to have enormous parts of the country that there's there's not going to be any choices in and for people you know for for people in large parts of the country including around here there there's not going to be any sort of choice if you're if you're buying in the Obamacare market you know you're you're not going to be able to choose an insurance plan like like right now my insurance plan um, I, I have options. I can decide what health care network I, I want. We have you know, choices. So, I mean, I, I can pick my doctor, and I can pick my health care plan. If you are in the Obamacare markets, the exchanges, I mean, even there's communities in Wisconsin where you don't have, you've you got one choice. And maybe, you know, that, that insurer, they've cut a deal with one of the health providers, so you're, you, you can't be in... In a network, just for example, and maybe you want freighter. Well, freighter's not covered there, so you, you can't be in the freighter network. Maybe you want Ascension because that's where your doctors were. Well, you can't participate in that. That's that's and that's what's not only happening now, but it's going to continue to happen. So you, you've got to end up doing something because what they're doing now does not work, and it's going to be more and more dramatic. So maybe this is the pressure to to get that to happen. All right. Big story number three, a Democrat out of Madison has a solution to the state budget problem. We'll talk about that next. It's 9.57. It's 10.08. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So, so Jane, you will notice that um, my regular producer, Hondo, is not here. We've got the big dog who's sitting in, BD. I was wondering what uh, what his new moniker is. Right, well, it's, it's, no, it's, it's the big dog. We call him BD. But uh, Hondo, it's an interesting story. Hondo is not, uh, he, he's not on vacation. He's on jury duty. Oh. So he, he's on he's on jury duty in Milwaukee County. He, um, 
I haven't talked to him, but there's been texts going back. So he apparently was in a jury pool yesterday. Okay. I mean, they, they, you That's know, where they, they actually bring him in and question you? Right, exactly. So he got to the jury pool. Um, he, he got one question into the jury pool because they asked him what he did. <laughs> and he apparently said, well, I work for Jeff Wagner at WTMJ Radio. Boom. <laughs> at which point in time, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> going back episode or whatever. So it's um, Well, maybe he'll be released soon then. Well, it, it, yeah, it, it was a two-day type of thing. I am scheduled... I am scheduled to be a reserve juror. That's coming up in a couple weeks where you, you don't have to go in, but you call the night before and they, they bring you in. Yeah. I've done that. I've done that a couple times. Right. Yeah. I, I was actually, I got, I, my number keeps coming up. A few years back, I, I was called from Milwaukee County jury duty. I, I actually went down there and I'm sitting in the big room and, and actually he's still a current, he's circuit judge, you know, John D'Amato. You know, he, he's telling everybody, he's talking to the group, explaining how glad they are that everybody's come down. They're doing their civic duty. And he singles me out. He says, oh, sitting in the front row, former U.S. attorney, you know, radio talk. Talk show host Steve, we got Jeff Wagner. He, he he's here doing his civic duty. You know, he he didn't try to get out. I was sitting there thinking. I could get out. You know, There's a like, way to do that. Well, it, it, well it, in my case, it was kind of like I, I mean, I, I actually I don't think I would mind necessarily being on a jury, but nobody in their right mind is going to put me. No attorney in their right mind is going to put me on a on a jury. I I was actually on a panel. I got called for a panel, you know, and it was a it was a criminal case and. It seemed like every question I was answering, okay, you know, anybody been involved in law enforcement? Well, I was a federal prosecutor for years. And <laughs> anybody know anybody? Yeah, I know this person and that person. And it's that, you know, it's just, it was kind of like, oh, it was an interesting experience. I, I think maybe at some point in time, maybe, I, I think, I could see if, if I ever stopped doing this and I was retired and didn't have, and had some time on my hands, I, would you like to be on a jury? I think it would be interesting. I do. And I think it's really important that this is our process. Right. And if people aren't willing to do this, then we got nothing. Right. Right. You know, it's and I know it's inconvenient, and I know it can be from from what I understand anyway. But again, it's it's a really crucial part of our process. See, if I were an attorney, and I, I mean picking a jury, as I've done, you know, a lot of times, I would put you on a jury. I, you would be the type of juror that I would want. Really? I would absolutely. Me, on the other hand, <laughs> no, serious. I mean, if I was, I would. There's no way I take a chance on me. Now, I think I could be fair and open-minded, but you just. You don't want to take a chance. You know, you wouldn't be a chance. Me, you know, no lawyer would take a chance on me, I don't think. And, and no judge would want me on the jury because they know I'd be sitting there thinking, I'd be second-guessing everything. And then, of course, it would all end up being a radio story. So, Well, right. So I, I, don't, I don't think at this point in time I'm likely to be on a jury. But who knows with Hondo? He, he's down there. So um, we got the big dog in today. But if Hondo gets picked on a jury, who knows? You might be back tomorrow, BD. You can never tell. <laughs> Uh, all right, Jane was talking about this story um, in in her newscast, and I just I want to observe, make an observation. When I put together, I, I start to put together the program the, the night before. Normally, I sit down about ten or ten thirty, and I I start to kind of put it together, and I have all different things I look at. A lot a lot of stories come from tips that you have sent me. I appreciate that very much or for just experiences in my life that I want to talk about. And then there's various websites and stuff that, that I go to. So I check all these things out, and I'm scanning stuff, looking for things that might be interesting. So you're looking at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different headlines, trying to find things that I think might interest me, so hopefully they would then interest you. So headlines are kind of, kind of important. And I do admit... Um, kudos to whoever wrote this headline. Um, it's uh, it's uh, USA Today Network, Wisconsin. So maybe that's the Journal Sentinel. I don't know. Um, here's the headline: Manitowoc police subdue naked man, accidentally light him on fire. Okay, I admit that headline got me to stop and look at the, at the story. 
Police officers arrested a 32-year-old Manitowoc man Sunday evening for standing in the street without any clothes on. Okay. So, all right. Now, see, that, that first line has gotten me. Okay. He's standing in the street, 32-year-old guy in Manitowoc, standing in the street naked, displaying his shortcomings. Officers found Travis L. Tingler in the 1100 block of South 25th Street, near Hamilton Street, where he was shouting towards a home at the intersection that he had a knife and was going to gut people in the house. Naked guy, knife, screaming at the house. Tingler told officers he wasn't doing anything wrong, according to a Manitowoc police report. I told him he couldn't be out in the middle of the street with no clothes on, the officer said in the report. I asked him about his condition. I noticed he had a dazed appearance, I'll bet. Blank stare, and he was sweating profusely. Well, that's why he took off his clothes. He was hot. The officer suspected Tingler, who said other people were messing with him and he was calling them out, was impaired by drugs. Huh. Not a bad call, I would guess. He told the officer he could be out in the street with no clothes on and he didn't have a weapon. Tingler said he wanted to go home to a home on 25th Street. Police instead handcuffed him and, fighting a pair of pants on the front lawn, tried to put them on Tingler. Officers later found a pocket knife on the front porch of a nearby home, etc., etc., along with coins and several cigarette butts. Police talked to a girl who was holding a baby in the home. She said Tingler was dating her mother. She said Tingler was dating her mother and that they had lived in the home for about two years. She stated he started drinking alcohol three hours earlier and started to act weird, making comments such as, stay in the light and never come into the dark. Okay? He threw the glass he had been drinking from into the street, breaking it, took off his clothes, threw them onto the front porch, the girl told police. Okay, so now here's where it gets really weird. Now I understand up until now, you would say, okay, this is the weird part, Jeff. I mean, the guy standing naked screaming at the house, that's not weird enough? All right. Tingler refused to get into the squad car. Never a good idea with the police. I'm not going. Um, he said he wanted to see his kids. The mother came home from work, and police, um, the guy was refusing to get um, into the car. Police used stun guns to get him into the police car. Police reported that Tingler somehow picked up a lighter during the struggle. And when the stun gun probe hit the lighter, a combination of lighter fluid and electricity from the stun gun caused Tingler's beard and chest hair to catch on fire. Um, and I, you can't make this kind of stuff up. And you know, you know, here's the thing about this. You know that there's going to be a lawsuit. You, you know that there's going to be some lawyer out there that's going to be filing a lawsuit suing Manitowoc for setting this guy on fire. The naked guy screaming, refusing, struggling with the cops, getting into this fight, somehow grabbing a lighter. God knows where that comes from. They tase him. The taser hits the lighter. <laughs> the lighter fluid sprays and his beard and his chest hair. Ouch. Catch on fire. Um, an officer tried to pat the fire off his body. Tingler continued to fight even after the fire was put out. He then punched an officer in the face. The officer used a stun gun on him from about six feet away, and he then fell and hit his head hard on the pavement. Officers called an ambulance. Hospital staff said Tingler tested positive for marijuana and had a blood alcohol count of .177. is, of course, the legal limit, so he's twice the legal limit. But um, naked guy struggles with the cop. There are just so many different Wagner's rules of life that the man is violating. Naked guy struggling with the police... (laughs) 
somehow grabs a lighter. They tase him. Taser hits the lighter. His beard catches on fire, and he still keeps fighting. He still keeps fighting. Not the best Sunday afternoon for Mr. Tingler. Speaking of marijuana, big story number three. We are, of course, now a couple weeks overdue from getting a state budget. It is an embarrassment. Robin Voss, I hope you're listening. Um, we have a Republican Assembly, overwhelming overwhelming Repub- number of Republicans in the state Assembly. You have a working margin in the state Senate, 20 Republicans, 13 Democrats. You have a governor, a Republican governor in the governor's mansion. Republicans control the executive and the legislative branch of government. Why don't you have a budget? Well, you don't have a budget because the Assembly leadership, not necessarily rank and file, has decided the way to proceed is they want to raise your taxes. Now, a lot of rank and file Republicans aren't necessarily happy with this because they did not run on platforms of raising taxes, but that's that's where we're at. So you've got this budget impasse. The budget was supposed to be done a couple weeks ago, and they're still no closer. So what's happening is actually sometime today, Senate Republicans are just going to say, okay, we've got our own budget. We're, we're going to release our, our budget, and you know we, we can't get the Assembly to agree. We're going to release the budget. I think, actually, maybe they should not just release it. They should go ahead and they should pass it. And then, I mean, force the hand of, again, the Republican Assembly leadership, which has this whole thing bottled up by insisting on tax increases that simply are not going to happen. My message has always been, if you want to appeal to some special interests, fine. You know, get the budget passed that the governor wants right now and the state senate wants, and then come back, and when you're running for re-election in 2018, campaign on a I-want-to-increase-your-taxes budget. All right? If you want to go to Republicans' constituents and say, I think we need to raise the gas tax, or I think we need to impose the sales tax on the gas tax, my response is go with God, do it, but but present that you know in the course of a campaign. Now, the course is, of course, if you do that, you're going to lose. You're going to check, draw a challenger in a Republican primary, and you're going to lose. But if you really want to raise taxes, go ahead, present it to the voters, and give them a chance to do that. Anyhow, against that backdrop, there is a state representative out of Madison. Her name is Melissa Sargent, who's writing an opinion piece saying she has the solution to the budget problem. Forget about forget about borrowing, forget about increasing the sales tax, forget about increasing the gas tax. She knows how to solve Wisconsin's budget project problem and generate more revenue. Her solution, she wants to legalize marijuana and tax it. Not just medical marijuana, but all types of marijuana, medical and recreational. Um, Here's what she writes. In 2015 alone, with more than $1 billion in marijuana sales, Colorado's legal marijuana industry contributed nearly $2.4 billion in economic impacts to the state. Um, That's overall, I guess, I don't know where that number comes from, tourists coming in to smoke dope, things like that, and has boasted the fastest-growing business sector in Colorado, with more than 18,000 jobs created. Forget about Foxconn. Let's let's corner the marijuana sales industry, a powerful economic engine generating more per dollar in economic output and employment than 90% of other industries. By 2020, the marijuana industry in Colorado is expected to surpass all other industries as the state's largest excise revenue source. 
All right, if that is correct, Colorado's economy will become dependent on pot sales. Hmm. All right, she thinks that that would be a good idea for the state of Wisconsin. Big story number three, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I, I've always made the argument that there's a diff- I see a difference between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. Having said that, basing the state's growth and economy on selling and taxing pot, I think is absurd. I think it is incredibly, incredibly bad public policy to say, hey, we're going to become a state of potheads, but those potheads are going to be paying taxes, so we can use those taxes to help improve the roads. Well, okay, those same potheads are then going to be out on the roads. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, is legalizing pot the way out of our budget problems. What do you think? 414-799-1620. Obviously, my answer is this is not the way to go, but I'm willing to discuss. We're back with your calls. It's 1022. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. 1024, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, Justin text. After the story about the crazed naked man intoxicated and high on pot and alcohol, why would anyone sane want to do this and encourage more indiscriminate drug use? Forget Foxconn if we let all the potential workers get stoned. Well, there was that was kind of... Why, why I led into this topic with that story. Okay, but the flip side is, there's another text, great idea, eliminate drug dealers, collect the taxes that you cannot drink and drive, you cannot drug and drive, just maybe it might clean up some of the crime. Now see, I, here, here's the thing, I believe if you legalize pot, I- inevitably many, 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 many more people will use pot. Do we want to encourage the state to become a state of potheads more so than it already is? I mean, is that really where you want to have... Is that really what the social policy is? Do you want the economy of the state dependent on on pot sales? Let's talk to Ann in New Berlin. Ann, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. What do you think? Um, I think that it's a bad idea because the, the government tried that all across the country with um, with gambling casinos. Um, you know, oh, we're going to raise money for education um, by legalizing gambling. So all these casinos popped up all over the place and all we ended up with is a lot of people who were addicted to gambling who were in mega debt and losing their houses and everything else and um this you know the same thing is going to happen with marijuana i mean the people are are going to get addicted and they're not going to be able to keep a job so then how much taxes will they be paying if they don't if they end up you know, well, I mean, I guess I that, think it's I, I, marijuana not being able to be a productive member of society. I mean, I do think. I mean, thank, see, I just think it's interesting. Like the state representative, her, her argument isn't really marijuana is no worse than alcohol. It's there's this huge revenue stream that we could tap into, and I guess I, that's what really struck me. Do you want an economy of the state? Where your your revenue, the, the the tax revenue and the tax base is largely dependent on people using drugs. I mean, seriously, that's I don't know about you, but that's that's not what I want to build the, the the future on. Hey, let's go to Colorado. Forget about the tech industry. You know, they're they're, they're they've cornered the market on marijuana. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to uh, let's see Joe in Appleton. Joe, good morning. Good morning. What do you think? 
I can't believe I'm saying this, but I agree with the Madison politician on this one. Um, the amount of money that's in marijuana can directly impact our budget on a very, very positive note. I don't think when you paint the dooms picture that you just picture, painted as far as our budget being dependent on it and that majority, I don't think it gets to that extent. Well, the, the reason I, I mean, the reason I said that though is in this, this representative's piece, she says by 2020, the marijuana industry in Colorado is expected to surpass all other industries as the state's largest excise revenue source. I mean, it's a, I mean that Colorado's, I mean, they, they want to become the pot capital of the, of the United States, I guess. Well, the few, the few states that have legalized it are obviously the ones that are being directly impacted now. If you spread that across the 50 states, which I think we're naive to think that it's not going to get to that point, Maybe not immediately, but it, it, you're, you're already seeing it. Then those those sales and those the, all the manufacturers that are actually in the business side of marijuana will be dispersing themselves around right. the U.S. as well. So it's not going to. Your point is, it's not going to generate as much revenue. We we won't be as dependent on it. It's not going to generate as much revenue as say Colorado, where it's sort of a novelty now. It won't generate that much, but definitely enough to impact it and. I think there's enough evidence out there to say that marijuana, from medical side of things, even as a recreational user, is not as addictive as the harder drugs that are out oh. there. It's not, in my opinion, oh. much different than alcohol. And if managed and laws are written to make sure the users, there's impact if they aren't under the influence, per se, and that can be measured, by all means, let's get the revenue in the state. Thanks for the call, 414-799-1620. Um, we really kind of touched a nerve with this. Tell you what, let me take a very quick break. We're going to continue the conversation for one more segment. I mean, is, is this the answer? Is this the, the, the goose that's laying the golden eggs? Are we missing out on trying to capture revenue from marijuana sales? 1029, Jeff Wagner. <laughs> It's 1031, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We continue this conversation. There's a state representative in Madison who says the cure to the budget problems, legalize and tax marijuana. I'm sorry, I think it's a bad idea for a variety of reasons, but we'll continue the conversation. Thirty-six, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. Roger Waters brings his Us and Them tour to the BMO Harris Bradley Center on Saturday, July 29th. We're going to be giving away a pair of tickets each day this week. We've already given away the tickets for today, but be listening tomorrow. Um, you could be enjoying the music of Roger Waters, featuring songs from Pink Floyd, right here with six twenty, WTMJ. Okay, right now we're talking about a proposal from a state representative in Madison who says let's legalize pot, not just medical marijuana, and I. I I feel differently about medical marijuana than I do about recreational use marijuana. But let's let's be like Colorado. Let's legalize marijuana. Let's be like Oregon. Let's be like um, they, uh, Nevada just did it. Let's be like these other states. Let's tax it. Let's generate revenue. That will help dig us out of our budget problems. Let's talk to Tracy in Oconomowoc. Tracy, good morning. I agree 100%. I think it would get us out of the hole that we're in. I'm an oddity. I've never smoked it, never tried it. I'm 45, you know. But um, you don't hear about people dying from marijuana. You hear about people dying from alcohol. You hear about people dying from cigarettes. And I know the other woman's not going to be happy with me, but I think it's an ignorant comment to say if we legalize it, more people are going to do it. Oh, really? You, you think that's it? I, Tracy, I couldn't disagree with you more. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't think that there's some... 
Pardon me? What? They're going to do it whether it's legal or not. Oh, no. I don't. See, I guess I, I don't agree with you at all. I think that if you, I mean, the, the fact is that there is still some sort of stigma, stigma and the fact that it, it's a crime, I think there's a lot of people who choose not to do it because they recognize that there could be some consequences. I mean, I, I guess I, I candidly think if you, if you legalized it, you'd, you'd have usage just go well, through the roof. Cigarettes. cigarettes are legal, and it's down now more than it's ever been before. So if you go by that scenario, cigarettes are legal, so we should still be seeing a huge increase in young teenagers. Oh, it's, 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 you know, it's a cool thing, little smoke kind of thing, and, and it's down now, and it's still Okay, so, so do you understand? You want to then legalize marijuana but then discourage people to use it? Because I think one of the reasons cigarette usage is down is because we've spent so much money over the course of the last several decades trying to educate people about how dangerous the things oh, are. Oh, sure, it kills you. My father died from it when I was four years old. It's an absolute killer. Okay, marijuana so... from the earth. What, I, I don't. I don't think it would hurt. I don't. It doesn't. Well, marijuana is a lot more carcinogenic than than cigarettes are. Now, of course, the difference is theoretically you're not going to smoke a pack of marijuana a day and, and be able to function. Exactly, exactly. Like I said, for me, I would. I would. I encourage. I've got older kids now. Would I encourage them to use it? Oh, absolutely not. But do I think it's going to hurt in any way to capitalize on it the way these other states are? Absolutely. I think it would do us. I, I think it would be a good thing for Wisconsin. Thanks to call, 414-799-1620. I, I, see, one of the arguments I have I've always made, now, there, there's a lot of people who believe that marijuana is a gateway drug. I, I think I think it is, maybe not as much as, and I, I'm not suggesting that everybody who smokes pot, you know, then goes to heroin or to cocaine or to methamphetamine. I, I do think if you look at the numbers, uh, many people who end up doing heroin or cocaine or methamphetamine, start with marijuana. So I I do think there is some truth to the fact that it's a gateway drug. I guess I I just, I I disagree with Tracy that the notion that if it's legalized, that that won't encourage people to do it. I I just don't, I don't buy that. I mean, I think I I recognize that it's it's illegal now and there's a number of, or decriminalized in some cases, and there's a lot of people who smoke pot, but at the same time, I think that does deter some people from doing it. And I guess as a practical matter, what's that going to do in the workplace? I mean, that's the thing that I kind of wrestle with because, you know, most workplaces have sort of zero tolerance drug policies and many do, you know, drug testing. This is actually an ongoing concern that people have. All right, you go to Colorado or you go to Nevada and you decide, here, I'm going to smoke some dope. All right, you come back, and then you end up in a drug test, and you test positive in Wisconsin, for example. Um, trust me, there's going to be consequences. I mean, how do you wrestle all that out? 414-799-1620 is the number. Interesting conversation. Mary in Oak Creek. Hi, Mary. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. I was listening to you, and I thought, you know, I wonder what happens when in a place like Colorado, I wonder what happens with, like, the heroin use. Mm-hmm. So I did some searching on Google and found a couple articles, and they were um, talk shows like yours. Right. And they talked about the heroin use going up 600%. Mm-hmm. And how because of, the, um, because of the marijuana use going up, meth labs were starting to come back into mm-hmm. Colorado. Yep. And it does seem that it does make drugs 
more acceptable. Well, it does. I mean, I don't think I don't think you can argue about that. You know, it's interesting you should mention that, Mary, because there was a story I was talking about a couple of weeks ago about one Colorado town that ever since they legalized marijuana, it has been overrun with, with druggies. It has become kind of a it's a border community, and it's become sure. overrun with people from other states, particularly younger people who are going there smoking pot. And what's happening is that they're they don't have jobs, so they're they're begging on the streets. Crime has become much more rampant. Now it's it's just, I, I mean, do we want to be a nation of potheads? I guess that's the oh, that's the concern. The other the other thing it mentioned was the border communities, people going and buying the drugs in those communities, taking them across the border, and selling them in you know across the state. Okay, so what are we going to do? We're going to have people come. Uh, people live in Wisconsin, and they're going to go one day a week down to Gurney, and they're going to have a, a you know a pot stand in the parking <laughs> lot. Yeah, you've got the farmers market. You know, you've you've got your you've got your fresh corn, and then you've got your carrots, and and then you got your pot. <laughs> and then under the table, you know, you say, "I'd like to get some of that that green oregano you got." You know, <laughs> and it, it just to me, I and for people to say, you know, I when I was young, I tried it. It's not, I'm not saying this as someone that's never tried it. You know, when I was young, I tried it. I have cancer now. I, like the drug that I'm on, if the drug that I was on would let me have right. medical marijuana, I would do it. I, it doesn't. It was. It, it says right in the literature right. that it it doesn't go with it. So if well, I could have it, I would. But yet, I don't. I don't even know about the medical marijuana. There's well, so many other things out there, and once you start getting it in the state, you've got. Yeah, I, I understand. Having more access. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for calling me. I mean, I, I do, I, I diff, see, I, my position is different on medical marijuana, having you know, just gone, gone through what I, you know, did with my late wife over the last couple of years. I mean, I, I guess I've always had the position that given the fact that you have doctors that can prescribe these really super powerful, really, really super powerful and addictive opioids to, to treat to, to treat various things. I guess I, I look at it, if you've got somebody that's got stage four cancer, you know, whose five-year survival rate is non-existent, who's really, really sick, and because of the drugs that they're taking, you know, can't, can't keep food down. If, if by smoking pot, that allows them, that improves their appetite, who cares? I, I, I guess that's, that's kind of my philosophy. You know, who cares at that sort of stage, especially when, you know, the, the physicians, I mean, the stuff that they can give you with prescription, that this really powerful stuff. In situations like that, again, my response is kind of who cares? It's, it's, it's managing pain. It's trying to maintain some sort of quality of life. And I understand that there's some people who say, well, if you open it up to medical marijuana, there's going to be all these doctor feel-goods who are given prescriptions. I, I think you could end up dealing with that. But, again, in, in situations, I, I, and again, I appreciate maybe I'm talking about an extreme sort of case. But, you know, again, if you, you have somebody who's just, you know, in chronic pain and no appetite and can't sleep or whatever, and marijuana would help them I have no issue with it at all. As a matter of public policy, and I understand, you know, whenever we do topics like this, and it's interesting because on a show like mine, while I have a very, very diverse group of opinions in the audience, there's a lot of conservatives, there's a lot of liberals too, and a lot of moderates, I, I would say 
I would say probably three quarters of the people who call and email me um, are are in favor of, or disagree with me on legalizing marijuana for a variety of reasons. So I mean, I, I freely acknowledge that this appears to be the trend. I think we're a ways away from it in Wisconsin, but re- regardless of where you feel on it, I don't think basing basing marijuana sales as one of the economic driving engines of the state. With all due respect, wherever you are on the question of legalizing marijuana, I, I don't I don't think I don't think that we want to say that this is what is going to fuel our economic growth, um, the, the idea that people are going to be smoking pot and paying taxes. It's 1046. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1050. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up in about 10 minutes, if workers are scarce, is it the work or the wages? And speaking of workers' rights, there's this movement that is starting in New York, but it's working around the country, that if you work in certain industries, the law says you have a right to be told what your schedule is at least two weeks in advance. And if the schedule changes, your employer has to pay you extra. Interesting concept. We're going to be talking about both of those things during the 11 o'clock hour of the show. Um, actually, my, my producer, BD, was, was making a point you know, it's it's really interesting when you try to wrestle with it, this whole, like, legalized marijuana concept, because there are a number of, it, there is a tension right now between the federal law, which still makes, for example, distribution of marijuana illegal, and state laws, which say it, it's legal. Well, all right, the state can say it's fine, but as long as the federal government says it's illegal, it's still illegal. It's a violation of federal law. And there's now that this, again, this struggle, you know, how do you, you know, uh, adjust the two? In addition, um, employers still have the right to maintain their own drug policies. And as a matter of fact, a lot of employers, uh, not only because of their own policy, but because of insurance concerns or whatever, for example, if you are, if you're a driver for, I don't know, you know, some, some sort of company, I mean, a lot of times they have what are really zero tolerance policies. You're not allowed to drive the company vehicles, you know, if you have drugs in your system. Marijuana hangs around in your system for a long period of time. You can marijuana test depending on, and I know this, only because of another life. I mean, you, you can marijuana test for up to like 30 days, and, and you can you know tell whether somebody has traces of marijuana in their system. So the question becomes, I mean, how do employers do that? So if you're, let's say you're living in Colorado, and it's legal for you to smoke pot in Colorado, or Nevada, where it is legal now for you to smoke pot, not in hotels. If you're going to Las Vegas, and you stop off at one of those pot stands, and you take the joint back to your hotel, and you light it up, that is against the law. But if you're smoking pot in a private home, that is that is legal. It's at least my understanding of how it works. So you do those type of things. But let's say you're working, and you're working for a company that has a zero-drug policy. Marijuana is probably going to be included. You get caught up in some form of drug testing. Well, um, you're... You're out on the streets. You're just out on the streets. So it's all those different things that we are wrestling with. All right. Whether it's drunken driving or drug driving or just bad driving or reckless driving, I, I swear, I am so sick of these different stories. And I'm, 
I'm frustrated because I, I don't know how we put an end to them. I started off the program by talking about how it's really gut check time for Tom Barrett in Milwaukee because you've had more and more examples of reckless driving and people just thumbing their noses and driving away from the police. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people doing it on a regular basis. The Fire and Police Commission has now said enough is enough. You can chase under many circumstances. And Tom Barrett has to decide whether he's going to overrule that directive or not. If Tom Barrett cares one whit about the safety of his city and the surrounding communities where you have criminals from Milwaukee who are now coming out and plundering out in the surrounding communities, he will, you know, go along with the Fire and Police Commission. It's going to be a real gut check time on public safety. But how many of these stories do we have to hear about people who are driving recklessly for whom it ends up badly? I mean, here's the latest story. Um, I got this off of Fox 6, but I think other people are reporting it as well. A 19-year-old Milwaukee man died after a vehicle slammed into a tree near Fond du Lac and Roosevelt July 17th and split in two. 4 p.m., 1990 Lexus LS400 was split in two as a result of the impact. Police say the Milwaukee man, who was the sole occupant of the vehicle, was driving eastbound on West Fond du Lac Avenue at a high rate of speed where the guy lost control of the car, the car struck the curb, and then hit a tree. The victim who presumably, this is me saying, wasn't wearing a seatbelt, was ejected from the vehicle. He was pronounced dead at the scene. I'm looking at the pictures right now of of this crash. Honest to God, the car is cut in half. I mean, it's just, it is cut in half. So I don't know how fast the car was traveling, but my guess is really, really fast. And so the guy's driving. He presumably loses control. I mean, it's not the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Loses control at a high rate of speed when he hits the curb. Car, I presume, goes airborne, smashes into this tree. The tree splits the car in half. It's just incredible. The guy is thrown, he, 19-year-old man, dead at the scene. And then the story's talking about loved ones at the scene were devastated by the sudden and unexpected loss um, officials are there to kind of work with the family and all. And it, it's a tragedy. you got a 19-year-old kid, 4 o'clock, 19-year-old young man, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, driving down a residential street in the city of Milwaukee. Now, this wasn't fleeing from the police or anything, but driving at an extremely high rate of speed. You lose control of the car because all it takes is a little bit. You hit the curb, at a, and then, you know, you're not wearing a seatbelt, and you end up dead. And, and the, the frustrating thing to me is this type of stuff, it is normal in our community nowadays. I mean, how often, I swear, you cannot drive anywhere in this area at any time of the day or night without taking your life into your own hands because you've got somebody that's decided, here, I, I'm going to pretend that I'm at the Hales Corner Speedway and I'm going to see how fast I can drive. Now, a lot of times, like I say, it's stolen cars or they're running from the cops, but sometimes it's just the rules don't apply to me. Red lights, who cares? 90 miles an hour, 100, I don't know how fast this car was going. They're saying excessive rate of speed, and it sure as heck looks like that. Again, it's a residential area. They're putting all of our lives in danger, and a lot of it, is just because people don't care. They're irresponsible. They think they can live forever, and the truth is they can't. 
But the problem is, it's not just them. When bad things happen, lots of times it's the little girl that's riding her bike in the street, or it's the kids that are playing in that little breezeway or whatever right in front of the tree. It's not just the people behind the wheel of the car. And this is nothing but personal responsibility. That, that's just the bottom line. This aspect of the story is nothing about personal responsibility. But here you have a 19-year-old young man dead. You've got the family grieving. Um, because he was speeding, driving irresponsibly, presumably, and I say presumably because he was ejected from the car, not wearing a seatbelt. But regardless, he's dead at the scene. Completely and totally unnecessary. People just need to wake the heck up. 1057 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. When we come back, is it the wages or is it the work if they can't find workers? And uh, lots more. Stick around. 1057 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Eleven oh nine. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Getting a couple of reports. This, this fatal accident I was talking about. It's horrible. Nineteen-year-old guy driving at a high rate of speed loses control of the car. Getting at least one report from some witness at the scene saying the car had been involved in rear-ending two other cars before that, then heading off at a high rate of speed. It, it's it's just and, and then leading to the fatal accident. It's just it's the joyriding. It's the recklessness. And and I, I don't know what the answer is. And I admit it's frustrating to me because if you do what I do for a living and you look at the news and you come up with stories to talk about, you always you always want to try to come up with some solutions. Now you might disagree with the solutions that I offer, but you, you want to say, Okay, this this is where what the better course is. I swear I don't know what you do with I don't know, just so many people who are just so completely and totally reckless who have the impulse control of fruit flies, who decide that, you know, we're going to behave in this fashion that is dangerous to themselves and dangerous to everybody else as well. All right, let me switch gears for just a little bit. We are going to talk about the, um, we're going to talk about the, if workers are scarce, is it the worker wages in just a minute. But uh, the breaking news story today, Harley-Davidson, a great American company and, of course, a mainstay in the Milwaukee area, um, announcing today that uh, job cuts are coming. They're going to be announcing workforce cutbacks today. Uh, Companies' net income fell 7.7% in the second quarter of of the year um, from a year earlier. Revenue from motorcycles and related products fell um, about almost um, $100 million dollars. Um, Harley said its worldwide motorcycle sales were down 6.7% from a year earlier, and that U.S. sales were down 9.3%. So a drop of, okay, it's, it's 9.3%. Let us round up to 10% or round down to 9%. Regardless, that's a pretty significant cut. The company, which previously forecast flat to down modestly full sales bike sales now it says it expects to ship somewhere in the neighborhood of 245,000 motorcycles in 2017 that's down somewhere around 8% from last year the new projection includes a 10 to 20% decline in production in the third quarter i have a uh, i have a good friend of mine who I see on a weekly basis, who works in the motorcycle in- industry, sells motorcycles, he sells bikes, that's what he does. And I, I've always, I, I'm always kind of curious, and I, I was actually on Sunday, I was talking to him about this, and I said, well, what's the, you know, what, what's, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, for, for him, and he's been doing this for years and years, he's got all sorts of loyal customers, and, and it does okay. But he says, look, the problem is that, I mean, Harley is really struggling with, 
the younger customer that they've you know that that so many people that the Harley the Harley rider has is the baby boomer and us baby boomers are getting older and older that that's just the reality and they're, they're not buying as many bikes or they're aging out of the activity and it's just not being replaced by by the younger riders and that that's that that's just the reality and that they were kind of hoping that maybe they could make up for the decline in the US by going worldwide and that necessarily hasn't taken um that that necessarily hasn't taken hold all right 4147991620 that is the acunet mortgage talk and text line for the longest time there was there was a mystique there there was the, the harley culture and I, I think, I mean, that still exists. I, I know you've got the big bike rallies, and there's a lot of people that absolutely love it. But but the problem is th- there's not enough of the Harley riders that are out there. Or more importantly, there's not a lot of the young people or enough of the young people that are getting into the activity um, to make up for the older people who are dropping out of the activity. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If if you're a biker, I'm I am genuinely curious. Is this is this just a cyclical thing? And by cyclical, I mean all right, businesses they, they go through up and down periods of, of time. It, it kind of you know for a while there'll be a decline. You, you sell all the bikes you possibly can, then people aren't buying them, and then there's an explosion again. Or is this more of a long-standing problem? Um, what about the millennials? You know, what about the younger people? Are, are they going to be adopting this? Hey, we're going to we're going to drop money on on the bikes, and we're going to we're going to have the we're going to adopt the same sort of cultural thing that our parents did. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. I have some thoughts about this, but I, I know you do as well. So if you're on the line, please hold on. Um, is is this just a blip in the road for Harley, or is this a longer term problem? We discuss next. It's eleven fourteen. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. <laughs> It's 1117, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I mean, there was a time not that long ago where if you wanted to buy a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, you had a waiting list for, for that. Um, not so much anymore. I mean, I, I'm, I'm being told that you can walk into a dealership and, you know, walk out with a new bike a week later. Harley's going to be announcing more layoffs, cut back in their workforce. They're um, substantially down. I mean, um, their, their sales forecast for the whole year is down 6 to 8%, US sales down quarter to quarter down 9.3% and the concern is largely younger people aren't buying the bikes and older people us baby boomers I'm lumping myself into that crowd are kind of aging out of the the activity 4147991620 is this cyclical is it reversible Mike and Mosquito Mike you're on 620 WTMJ good morning yeah, good morning. Um, I, I hear this topic and this issue, and one idea I had was we need some sort of, we need Harley to get together with some sort of screenwriters or something or tap into the media a little bit. If we could get a, a strong character that uses a Harley, I know Easy uh, Ready Player One is coming out very soon. Steven Spielberg's directing it's about a gamer who's in an oasis. If he was riding a Harley bike, that might get uh, you know, millennials excited about having a character or someone that can identify. So you with. think it's a marketing thing as opposed to people not into the activity? I definitely think it's a marketing thing. Anything that gets marketed creates the desire and the want for having a way to get there. Everybody needs to travel, and so if we can, if they can market a way to get people to recognize 
that a cool way to travel, like an easy rider, mm-hmm. uh, way back with Peter Fonda, yeah. if they can look at a way to do this, and kids can identify with, young people can identify with, this is something great, and it's our thing, not their thing, right. that would work for millennials. Yeah, I, I guess, I, you know, I, I guess, see, I, just, I sort of, want, what I'm wrestling with, and I'm, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't ride a motorcycle, okay? Um, so I, I, I'm wrestling with the, the idea of whether or not this is a generational thing, whether it's the, the typical, you know, 25-year-old. And, and let's, put out, let's put aside the, the, the price, which, you know, Harleys, in general, I know they, they've got a couple lower-priced bikes, but, they're, but they're, most of their bikes are, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about a pretty decent downstroke to buy them. Then you've got all the other stuff that goes along with them. I think that there's just a lot of the younger people, the millennials, for whom it's kind of like, oh, that's my father or that's my grandfather's activity. Um, let's see on our text line. Here we go. Um, I'm 25. I just bought a Harley. Turns out I can't find anyone my age to ride with. And not only do they not ride, but the majority of my friends my age really dislike the sound of the Harleys. They will fade out of style for a generation or two, and then another group will decide to make them the new hip thing again. Huh? I mean, I... I don't know. I think there there might be something about that. Okay, Chris says, I live in Lake Geneva, and I've owned many cycles. One issue you have is the younger crowd has different priorities. A motorcycle is a luxury, non-essential item. I also work in the supply chain for the auto industry, and this is part of the economy, is being impacted as well. I mean, I, I think, you know, th- there is clearly that element. It's it, the Harleys, you, you need... The, I understand they make a couple cheaper bikes, but at the same time, you know, to really get into it, you have to have a pretty significant uh, downstroke. Let's talk to Patrick in Waterford. Patrick, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hi, yes, I'm calling because uh, I, I believe also that it's an economical uh, consideration for millennials not to purchase Harley-Davidson's. They just mm-hmm. simply can't afford it in today's economy. Are they buying cheaper motorcycles, or are they just not buying motorcycles at all? I think you see a lot more of them buying cheaper right. uh, foreign motorcycles than they are buying the Harley-Davidsons, once again, because they're just struggling to make ends meet, and they don't have disposable income that the baby boomers may have had. Right, right. So do you think at some point in time when the millennials... When and if, I guess, get get more settled financially, that they're going to then want to be buying the Harleys again. Oh, definitely. I think they the mystique and the the culture of Harley Davidson runs through the generations, and mm-hmm. they'll continue to to want to buy the Harley Davidsons because they're a good product. They're just expensive. Got it. No, they, they're thanks. No, they, they are definitely expensive, and it's not just the bike. It's the you know, they make a lot of their money in the clothing and the things like that. It's all the, the accessory stuff, too. Laura in Oostburg. Laura, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. So you said you wanted to hear from millennials. Yep. And I guess I technically count. I'm almost 30. Oh, you're a millennial still. Okay. okay and I, right. I love millennials, by the way, Laura. So that's I'm not saying that I'm not saying that derisively. Welcome to the show. What do you think? I'm coming home from work from my full-time job and my student loans are paid off. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. So... In my early 20s, my generation, a couple of them got motorcycles, and the ones I know that did ended up having to put their bikes down, usually because of deer and 
got injured pretty significantly. Right. So we're also, we're a safety conscious generation. We're starting to have our families. They're cost prohibitive. Um, they're not cool. And that, that sounds really lame, but there's other cool things we could do if we want to feel like we're 20 something. Um, like give me an example or two. Okay. Hipsters down in the third ward with their long beards, plaid shirts, tight pants and smoking now. Right. <laughs> like, Maybe that crowd could, if they decided vintage Harleys were cool, could bring it back and pretend like it was their unique idea. Right. But in the next 20 years, I don't see our generation really taking much of an interest. Because your generation just doesn't think it's cool. It's not cool. It's not safe. I mean, there's so many other fun things we can do. Right. Well, I think there, I mean, I think that's, I mean, I think that there's, you know, because Harleys for, you know, older gener other generations were cool. I mean, the baby boomers. I mean, it was the height of cool to, to, to have the the big Harley and to you know to pretend you know, you're a doctor or a lawyer during the day and on weekends you know you're the bike you're the you're the you're the the bad butt bike rider and things like that. But but I do think I I don't think I mean I think that there's a lot of people your age, Laura, who probably look at it and say that's what my dad and mom did. You know, and it's, and it kind of <laughs> has a white trash vibe to it, like. Uh, it's right, not right. an upper class feel to us anymore. It's uh, okay. You, you know how much, but of course you know how much a, you, you you talk about that. But you know how much a Harley costs. I mean, <laughs> to get into that lifestyle, you're you're talking about a substantial downstroke. But I, I but I get it. No thanks, and I appreciate your candor. No, I mean I I that I, I do think that there is a coolness factor. Um, let's see. I think uh, this is Justin. The only hope for Harley is going to be to create a new division with a new brand geared towards. The young, with a cool new image, with high-tech, quiet, environmentally friendly bikes, perhaps as a hybrid pedal and electric, huh? Um, and new brand imaging and merchandise to suit. You know, because I mean, the problem is, you know, people have been trying to make the, the crotch rockets go. You know, those things, and and that that just, I mean, I don't think that worked out for Harley as well. Let's talk to uh, Zach in Milwaukee. Zach, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi there. Hi there. What do you think? Um, I. Kind of as a couple of the other younger generation people on your show have said, is they're just not really that cool. How, how can I ask you, Zach? How old are you? Uh, twenty-nine. Okay, twenty-nine. So you're 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 kind of at the tail end of the millennial as well. Okay. It's just you know, getting into one of the bigger bikes is twenty grand, and you know they're expensive to maintain. All the parts for them are expensive. When you're comparing that to, you know, a lot of the other bikes out there that mm-hmm. you know. Younger generation likes to go fast. You know, right. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a safety conscious guy. It's, it's kind of a what's cool, what goes fast, what looks awesome, what sounds cool. And, you know, some of the, the cheaper Harleys are kind of in there. But, you know, people my age know a ton of them riding sport bikes. There's two or three of them that maybe have a Harley. And, you know, it's you just kind of synonymize big Harleys is, Old dudes on bikes coming home from the bar, and that's just kind of you know. I no, I I appreciate your candor, right? Right, it's it's old, and and you don't want to be part of that group. You don't want to. You might not mind coming home from the bar, but you want to don't want to be the old dude on the electric light or whatever. Yeah, well, not only that, but a lot of the old dudes when you go down to the Harley night, they look at the young dudes and they just kind of like shrug them off. They're, They're almost like not really so much as accepted as a lot of the old guys consider it like. This is a my generation thing. Right, you're coming into my generation thing, and so does Harley turn it around, or is this just the start of of an inevitable decline? 
Um, I think uh, I, I would probably say it's an inevitable decline, at least for a generation or two, before, you know, now retro bikes are starting to come back. People are starting to fix up retro bikes, where you see it 20, 30 years from now, you know, it could be the same same concept. But I think they're in for uh, at least a, a, a good amount of a lull for probably a, de- a decade or so. Interesting. Thanks for the perspective. I have a text that kind of makes that point. I live in Bayview, and motorcycles are everywhere, but I think the culture now is to fix old bike. Bikes, vintage bikes, are what is in around here. And I mean, the truth is too. I mean, Harley's getting a lot of competition. We've been talking about the millennials and the younger bikes. Now you've got, I mean, you've got other manufacturers. You've got, you know, Indian motorcycles, which I'm told make a, you know, I mean, that that's been a brand that's been around forever and it's gone through a couple different ownership models. And now they're making Indian bikes. I think out of Minnesota. I think off the top of my head. But you know, there's that competition. And the truth is, I mean, Harley. I mean, there were some product recalls over the last couple of years, so there's different issues. I, I hope it turns around, but I, I do think I, I don't. I, I think it's it's marketing to an extent, but it's also. I mean, I do think that the product is, in certain respects, it, it is. What did Zach say? It's, it's old dudes on old dudes on bikes coming home from the bar. I, I do think they've got to figure out within you know whatever the Harley brand is and the Mystique, they got to figure out how they attract the younger generation of riders. And I guess if I knew for sure the answer to that, um, I'd be charging Harley lots and lots of money to give him advice. It's eleven twenty-eight. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. <coughs> Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's game two of the Brewers' 10-game road trip as they continue their series in Pittsburgh, hopefully with a better played game and a better outcome than last night. Jeff and Lane are in the booth at PNC Park to begin our game day coverage at 530 this evening, sponsored by your Milwaukee Honda dealers. This is a big road trip. Um, you know, 10 games on the road. If they can... Um, 500, you know, maybe somehow, you know, win six or seven games, that would be just great. But they didn't get off to a very good start last night and candidly didn't look good playing. It was one of those games where they just didn't look like they came to play. Hopefully that will be all turned around uh, tonight. Again, our coverage starts at 5.30 this evening. Right now it is 11.31. Let's go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. It's 11.31. Here, see, I just wanted to stick around another hour. Eleven thirty-seven. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Interesting program today. Lots of really, really good calls. Um, what are the ultimate necessities for the perfect tailgate party? Brewers Extra Innings host Matt Pauley answers that with his top six list. It's in the Brewers section of your WTMJ mobile app. When you're there, you can download this show, and I know lots and lots of people do. Take it with you all the time. All right, I was talking to um, a guy I know who owns a bunch of fast food restaurants in, in Wisconsin. And I was asking him about the, the, 15, the this move to, you know, what, what would happen if we'd have a $15 an hour minimum wage? And we were talking about that. But one of the things he said to me, he said, well, what you have to understand, Jeff, is that the, the minimum wage, a, at least for his restaurants and his stores, it, it doesn't come into play. He said, because we could not find the type of workers that we want um, to hire we, we can't find them if we're just paying minimum wage because there's this incredible demand that's out there, um, and, and even for entry-level jobs, to get the people that you want to do the work. 
you, you, you can't pay whatever the minimum wage is. Because if you're paying minimum wage and, you know, the, the guy that runs the burger doodle down the way, he, he's, he, he's going to grab up the good workers um, and he's going to pay them. And you can tell who the good workers are going to be. And he's going to pay them a buck fifty more than you know the minimum wage. So he says a minimum wage really doesn't come into play. The the market for good workers, the market is what what takes over. But if you talk to a lot of employers, they will tell you their biggest problem is finding people who are willing to, to work. Um, now I bring this up because there was a couple interesting stories out of the New York Times. The um, the the government has apparently just agreed to release 15,000 new visas for these are the, these H2B visas these are are for seasonal workers so you know people can come in and, and do these seasonal jobs um you, you hear a lot of talk about this um there for example in some of the big tourist areas let's let's take the Wisconsin Dells they the employers there have all sorts of problems um, getting people who are willing to work at some of the more and and look there's there's I'm going to describe it as menial and I don't mean that in a derogatory way but you know pe- people don't want to be maids you know that I'm talking about you know going into the hotel rooms and making the beds and scrubbing the toilets and things like that you know people don't want to do that that type of work or working as the dishwashers or working as the busboys or working at some of like the hard seasonal work there's a story in the New York Times um they talked to a, a woman her name is Sarah Smith uh she owns a roofing company in Omaha and she says Look, we, we depend. I mean, summer is our big time. Spring, summer, early fall. This is our big time in Omaha, Nebraska to fix roofs because it's tough to do it in December and January and February. She says, um, you know, but we depend on these guest workers who come in on these visas because um, okay, we pay $17 an hour. So it's, it's essentially, it's, it's not particularly skilled work. You know, we give them a little bit of training, but it's $17 an hour. And she says, we can't find American workers who are willing to work, you know, hard work, Omaha, Nebraska, summertime. So you're going to be dealing with 85 degree, 90 degree heat, lots of humidity. It's a hard job. You're up on roofs. You're climbing around. You're doing physical work. She says, we can't find people. At seventeen dollars an hour. Um, so what we have to do is, you know, we bring in the, these foreign workers. Now there's some economists who would say, no, no, no. Um, it, it's just it's a matter of economic supply and demand. It's not that people won't do the work. It's that you're not paying enough money. And if you pay twenty-five dollars an hour or thirty dollars an hour, maybe you'd be able to find people. But then, of course, her response is. Well, if if I had to charge, if I had to if I had to pay thirty dollars an hour instead of seventeen, um, I would have to charge the people instead of charging them ten thousand dollars for a roof, I'd have to charge them sixteen or seventeen thousand dollars for a roof, and and nobody nobody wants to pay that. All right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is one of the things that I wrestle with with the whole issue of immigration. Because the truth of the matter is, I think there are, it is a problem in this country. I think that there are a lot of Americans who just don't want to do a lot of the jobs that are out there for what the jobs are worth. 
Now, I guess, I mean, I understand that jobs are worth whatever you pay, but if objectively, you know, you, objectively, you've got a job working in a burger doodle, a fast food restaurant, and objectively, that job is worth 10.50 an hour. Well, I think there's a lot of people who say, well, I'm not going to get off my couch for 10.50 an hour. I mean, I, I, I just, I don't want that. I want more money. Or, gee, I, who wants to be climbing along? Who wants to be out climbing on a roof? You know, during the summer when it's a hundred degrees outside, um, and you're going to pay me seventeen dollars an hour. I mean, I see what this woman is talking about, and I think that there is something to that. I think that there's a lot of jobs that American workers just don't want to do. Maybe they think it's beneath them. Maybe they think it's okay. Now, arguably, maybe if you paid thirty dollars an hour instead of seventeen, you'd get people. But it's not. The jobs aren't worth that. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, so if, if employers in these seasonal businesses particularly are having trouble get, filling the jobs, is it the work or is it the wages? I will concede that maybe it's a little bit of both, but I think in many cases it's the work. Americans don't want to do some of these jobs. All right, we discuss next. It's 1143. If you're on the line, please hold on. Eleven forty-six. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Let me bring this conversation home. I mean, and, and we've talked about this before. The dairy industry in Wisconsin, right? You, you talk to dairy farmers, and they will tell you they can't find people that are willing to do the job. Being a dairy farmer is a really tough job. It, it is. It is hard work. Those cows don't care if it's Christmas Day. They don't care if you've got a head cold. They don't care if it's Easter. They don't care if it's the 4th of July. All they know is they need to be milked a couple times a day, and those that barn needs to be mucked. It's hard work. There's no question about it. And what, what these dairy farmers will say, they, they cannot find Americans who are willing to come in and will do that work, even for pretty decent money. So I guess the question becomes, is it the work or is it the wages? Now, I guess you say to a certain point, okay, if instead of 15 or $17 an hour, we pay $30 an hour, maybe we can attract somebody. Maybe. I tell you, I think it's a little bit of both, but I, I, think, I think it's the work. I think that there are jobs that Americans just don't want to do. Let's talk to Tony on the west side. Tony, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Um, what I think is, I think there there is uh, some of that also, but I think the majority of it is is that a lot of the uh, illegal immigration that comes in here doesn't have uh, a lot of people talk about the fact that they do keep wages down because a lot of them are willing to work for you know mm-hmm. pennies on the dollar, and a lot of times these employers will take advantage, mm-hmm. and, and that's wrong too, um, and they're not paying taxes, and, and it hurts everybody. So really, we're not getting the work done cheaper because we're not getting that tax money. And a lot of times we have to spend our own resources uh, if they get hurt or if they get sick, um, and a lot of them don't have insurance. So we have to pay for all that. So it's well, keep in mind right now. I mean, I'm not talking about illegal immigration. I'm talking about the people that come in on the visas. But but let's 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 move to your point. All right, I guess. All right, let's imagine that you're okay. You're in in Tempe, Arizona, where it's 130 degrees, and you know you run a lawn care company, um, and I mean. And, and okay, so maybe you're paying people who are here legally or you know on visas or illegally or whatever. You're paying them nine bucks an hour. Do you really think if you paid 
I don't know, Americans, 12 bucks an hour or 13 bucks an hour, they do those jobs in that 130-degree oven. I mean, I guess that's what I'm wondering. I just don't think there's a, I think there's a lot of work that Americans, for whatever reason, and I'm speaking in generalities, just won't do. You are right. I think that a lot of Americans, especially the younger generation, have gotten this idea in their head. Like, when I was younger, I would have killed for a job like right. that. I don't care if it was 120 degrees. I would have jumped at a chance to earn money when right. I was a kid. People just aren't willing to do what it takes to earn the money. They want to start at the top. They want the top wage. And that's a problem, too. So you, you do bring up a very good issue also. No, thanks. I mean, I guess that's kind of my point because I think, you know, I mean, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to date myself here, but, I mean, I, I think that that's a lot of things. You, you look at, uh, I'll go to Wisconsin Dells. Let's get out of the dairy industry. But, I mean, they, I know that there's a lot of the, the hotels, the restaurants, the service industry that depend on, like, foreign students or whatever because they, they can't fill the jobs with, um, you know, local kids or whatever who are like, well, I don't I don't want to be a maid. I, I don't want to, you know, clean hotel rooms. I don't want to be a busboy. I don't want to clean out toilets. I don't want to do that type of stuff. And I guess, I mean, I can see that at some point in time, you could perhaps pay enough money. Okay, we're going to pay you twenty dollars an hour. But but what happens if you do that? I mean, it's, you know, I mean, should you have to? The job ostensibly isn't worth twenty dollars an hour. Now I understand you can argue, well, it's worth whatever you have to pay to get somebody to do it. But my point is, I think that there's a lot of these jobs that Americans just don't want to do, and that's why you know when you look at some of these these programs. I mean, the woman, like I say, this, the story. She's a roofer, seventeen bucks an hour. Now I understand. I don't. I, I would fall off the roof. That's not for me. But at the same time, if you've got somebody that has limited skills, I don't think $17 an hour for seasonal work is that unreasonable. Admittedly, it's hard work and things like that. But at the same time, she, she, if without the visas, without people coming in legally, the workers that come in legally, she can't. She can't run the business. 414-799-1620. Um, let's talk to uh, Scott in Waukesha. Scott, you're on 620 BTMJ. Good morning. Yes, Jeff. How are you today? Well, well thank you. Okay, is it the work or the wages or what? So I'm going to say it's the workers. I've owned my own business in the landscape maintenance company for now close to 30 years, and I could have expanded my business almost trifold this year. We had more than enough work, more than enough customers, but... I couldn't find employees uh, to save my life, actually. Right now, are you paying? Are you paying below market wages or well, anything? No, like I think we're very competitive with that, and I have a lot of friends in the industry, and we kind of compare what our wages are. And we were starting at thirteen dollars an hour, right. and then we were at time and a half for anything over forty dollars. And this is unskilled. You're talking. This is unskilled work, yep. essentially, yep. right? Yeah. General labor, but they won't even show up on the first day of work. They'll they'll fill out the applications. They'll they'll come to the interview. And you wait for them to show up on the first day, and they don't even show up. <laughs> so you seriously, you could have expanded your business multiple times. You've got what would a classic like entry level. Now I'm sure ex- expect people to work hard, Scott. It sounds it, like it, it's you know. No, no, it's general labor. Yeah. And you know what? And, and, and it is it's the simple work. You know, it's a lot of lawn mowing, fertilizing, mulch work, stuff like that. Right. And I know a lot of friends in the industry that do the exact same thing, and we talk with each other. We cannot find the workers. Yeah. And then the ones that do show up have to be coddled. And, uh, you know, God forbid if you ever would reprimand them or yell at them. And, you know, and uh, my best friend does the same thing, and he actually yelled at an individual who never showed up for work on time. Well, we're talking like a half hour plus late for work. Right. And the employee got agitated with him. How dare you say that today? <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, so, okay, you you got to show up. No, thanks. I, see, and that, I guess, see, that's, 
that, that's my point. And again, I, this isn't. I don't bring this up from the perspective of illegal immigration, which is a whole another topic. I'm talking about how th- these are these visa programs for seasonal workers that they've originally they scaled back, but now they're, they're starting to increase them because what they're finding is, I, again, they can't find. Americans who are willing to do the, the type of work, and I, I do think that says something. Is it is it wages? Yeah, but I mean, again, I'll, I'll use the example. It's 120 degrees in in Santa Fe or Te- Tempe, Arizona. Um, yeah, yes, maybe you can find somebody who's one on one of these visa programs or whatever who'll do it for nine bucks, and maybe that's below market rate. But my belief is, you if you'd offer you know somebody twelve or thirteen dollars, you couldn't find people who'd be willing to do the work because it's it's hard. It's tough. So, I mean, keep keep that in mind. And I guess I sort of wonder how we got to this stage in the first place, where you have people who just well, gee, unless I get to wear unless I get to wear khaki pants and a you know dress shirt and sit on my butt and look at a computer all day, I, I don't want to do the job. Well, not everybody you know has the skill set to be in that position. It is 11:54. Scafidi and Bill Statter are next. We'll find out what they have on their minds. Please stick around. Eleven fifty-seven, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ, eighty degrees outside. I'm out of here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, keep in mind, Paul Ryan, nine oh eight tomorrow. We got a lot to discuss with him. But before that, Eric Bilstadt, Steve Scafidi, gentlemen. Hey, Jeff, and boy, that's a good day to go outside. Perfect weather outside. You're you're getting out of here. We're just jumping in the studio. Lots to talk about. As it seems every day, and I'll be interested to hear what Paul Ryan has to say about health care I can't tomorrow. imagine what you're going to talk to him about. <laughs> Nothing going on in Washington. Right, Donald Trump Jr., health care, and yeah. then all the stuff that he wants to talk about. So we'll yep, see. Yep. Yeah.